Chapter Nine of the Annals of Anne by Kate Trimble Sharper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I think if the person which remarked it is not always May had said April, he would have come nearer hitting it, for I think it's the most beautiful time of all. There's something in the very feelings at this time of the year that makes you want to write pretty things, whether you know what you want to say or not. So I've got out my diary and dusted it off, it being laid away in the drawer ever since last fall, when I told about me getting Miss Wilburn's affairs so mixed up because there hasn't been anything happening. One time, not long ago, I did get out my diary, for I got very excited over the news that a widow was here, and I sharpened seventeen pencils so as to be ready for her. But she had the misfortune to marry before I could get introduced to her a man from her same city which had got on the train and followed her down here. She was a lovely, high-heeled, fluffy, petticoated kind of a widow, and I could have written chapters out of her, I know, because all the time she was down here the ladies' sewing circle met three times a week and talked so that Father said he heard they had to pass around potash tablets instead of refreshments for the sake of their sore throats. Mammy Lou made fun of me when I told her how disappointed I was over not getting to meet such a pretty lady and write her experiences. Looks like you'd know better than to expect a widow to waste time a coatin', she told me with that proud look coming over her face that always does when she begins to brag on herself. They don't coat. They marries. There ain't nobody able to dispute with me over the ways of widows, for ain't I been six of them myself? This ain't exactly so. It's just five, for she never has got that divorce from Bill Williams yet, and she says now that she's going to spend the money that the divorce would cost in beautifying herself so she can marry again. She says she wants to buy her a stylish set of bangs and a pair of kid gloves to go with them. Then she's going to let the next man make her a present of the divorce for a bridal gift. And you needn't be setting it down in that little dairy book of yarn neither for your grandchildren and me making a sport of me about after I'm dead and gone. I told her it was a diary, not dairy. But she wouldn't listen to me. Go along with that stuck-up talk, she told me. Ain't I been knowing about dairies all my life? And I never even heard tell of a diary till I learned my sorrow of that pesky little book that's always getting lost and me having to find it. And I couldn't blame her very much for this, me being a great hand myself to get words mixed up in my childhood, especially such words as epistle and apostle. I always thought that ignorant people said epistle, and smart ones apostle. But, as I was saying, a sweetheart is the proper thing to get in the spring, if you can get one. But if you're too little for such a thing, a kindred spirit is the next best thing a girl can have. A kindred spirit is a girl you lay awake till twelve o'clock of a night telling secrets to. Of course, men never tell secrets, but they often need a kindred spirit, that is, a close friend, especially when they get so sick they think they're about to die. They want the friend to run quick to their private office and burn up some letters in their desk that it wouldn't be healthy for them to let their wife know about, even if they were dead. So, it is a convenient thing to have male or female. The first night I laid awake with mine, I told her all about stuffing my insteps to make them look aristocratic and kissing Lord Byron's picture goodnight every night, which I never would have done in the daylight. At night, 
things just seem to tell themselves, although you're very sorry for it the next day. Men mostly propose at night. I guess one excuse is that the girls form such beautiful optical illusions under a pink lampshade. Well, I told her all I knew, and she told me the story of her life, which is as follows. Her name is Jean Everett. Her mother's name is Mrs. Everett, and her young lady aunt is named Miss Merrill Arnold on her mother's side. They are down here to spend the summer and are boarding close to our house. There's another boarder in the house for the summer, which is named Mr. St. John, and Jean says if they had named him Angel instead of just Saint, it wouldn't be any too good for him. And if I do say it myself, he is as beautiful as a mermaid. Mammy Lou says he's got a consumpted look, but to other people it is the height of poetry. Jean is so full of poetical thoughts herself that her stomach is very much upset and nothing but chocolate candy will agree with her. She has promised the next time she stays all night with me she will tell me the one great secret of her life. As if I hadn't guessed it the minute she called Mr. St. John's name. She hasn't got much appetite, and the smell of honeysuckle fills her with strange longings. She says she either wants to write a great book or live in a marble palace or marry a duke. She can't tell exactly which. But the poor girl is cruelly misunderstood by her family, because her mother is giving her rhubarb to break it out on her. Jean came over early this morning and said she just had to talk to somebody about how spiritual Mr. St. John looked last night with his fair hair and white vest on. He looked just like a lily, Anne, she said, with almost tears in her eyes, and me, remembering Dr. Gordon, didn't laugh at her. Then, before it could comfort her, she had dropped down by the iris bed and was telling me the one great secret of her life, without waiting to stay all night and tell it in the moonlight. Love him, she said, gathering up a handful of purple irises. Love him? I'd cook for that man. I didn't hardly know what to say in answer to this secret, which wasn't much of a secret to me. But she didn't wait for me to say anything, for she went on telling me what big pearl buttons the white vest had on it, and how Mr. St. John said, Ither, and Nither, and how broken her heart was. She said she was the most sinful girl on earth, for she believed Mr. St. John was about to get struck on her Aunt Merle, and here she was winning him away from her. I asked her if he had ever said anything about loving her. And she said, why, no, no well-behaved girl would let a man say such a thing to her until they had been acquainted at least a month, and they hadn't been knowing each other but twenty-two days. I then asked her if he had made any sign that he would like to say things to her when the month was out. But she said that was just where the trouble came in. She knew she could win his love if she once got a chance at him. But no matter how early she got up of a morning to go and sit with him on the porch before breakfast, which was a habit of his, he would just ask her how far along she was in geography, and if she didn't think algebra was easier than arithmetic, and such insulting questions as that. Then he would pace up and down the floor until her Aunt Merle came out the front door, acting like a caged bridegroom. She said, oh, 
It would put her in her grave if she didn't get her mind off of it for a little while. Then she asked me if we were going to have strawberries for dinner and she said she would run over and ask her mother if she could stay. This morning, Jean asked me if I remembered what Hamlet in Shakespeare said about words. I told her I had just got as far as the Merchant of Venice and was getting ready to start on Hamlet when Miss Wilburn left. She said, well, he remarked words, 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 but he didn't know what he was talking about. She said he meant that there wasn't anything in mere words, but he was badly fooled for there was a heap in them. I told her, yes, there was something in words, for I had read of a beautiful Irish poet once that just couldn't think of a word that he wanted to finish up a song with. He studied it over for about three months when all of a sudden one day his carriage upset and bumped his head so hard that he thought of it. Jean said that was a beautiful story and she would be willing to have her head bumped once for every word if she could just write poetry that would touch one cold heart that she knew of. I said, well, how on earth did all this talk about words come up? And she told me that all her future happiness depended on the meaning of just one word. Then she went on to tell me that this morning she had seen her Aunt Merle on the porch talking to Mr. St. John. So she slipped around to the end of the porch like I showed her how to do when there was anything interesting going on, and she had heard him tell Miss Merle that she mustn't condemn the precipitation, but rather consider how he could do otherwise. Then he had made use of a word that she never heard of before in her life. It was propinquity and miss merle's face had turned as red as tomatoes when he said it she said if it was a love word she was ready to commit suicide of a broken heart but if it was a hateful word and they were quarreling then there was great hopes for her we looked it up but the dictionary man didn't explain it hardly a bit finally i told jean as it was spelled so much like iniquity maybe they meant the same thing and she went home feeling much easier in her mind i'm in such a writable mood tonight that i don't know what to begin on i reckon i'll know less about where to stop mammy lou started us at it for her mind never runs on a thing except loving and marrying she asked me early this morning if we wasn't going to try our fortunes today by looking down into a well at noon this being may day me being of an affectionate nature of course liked the idea so i ran right over to tell jean who was simply carried away she said it would be such a relief to her to see the face of her beloved reflected in the well but i told her that to see any face would mean that she was going to get a husband which a girl ought to be thankful for and not get her heart set on any particular one while we were planning about it miss merle came in and asked what it was when we told her she smiled and asked if she was too old and grown up to join in the game but i told her no indeed she didn't act at all like a grown person i really think miss merle is very fascinating even her name merle sounds soft and sweet to me like a right fresh marshmallow now naturally anybody would be excited to think that they were going to see their husband's face at twelve o'clock in the bottom of a well and it seemed to us that the time would never come there is a very old well down in our pasture close by the fence which ain't covered over and a lot of lilac bushes right around it in bloom so 
You couldn't well pick a prettier spot for your future husband's face. Mammy Lou said we better all wear white sunbonnets because they become you so, and Miss Merle looked awful pretty in hers with her dark curly hair. I don't know how the news that we were going to do such a thing ever got spread, for we didn't hardly tell a soul, just Mother and Mammy and Mrs. Everett and the lady they board with and her married daughter, which all promised that they wouldn't ever tell. But somebody else found out about it, as you shall see. We collected at the pasture gate at exactly a quarter till twelve, and the minute the first whistle blew we raced to the well, for we were all anxious to see our husband if he was there. They said for me to go first, as it was my well, but I said no, they must go first, because they were company. But Miss Merle said for me to look first, then she and Jean would look at the same time, as their husbands wouldn't mind reflecting together, being that they were kin. My heart was beating so that I was about to smother, but I pulled my bonnet down low over my eyes to shut out any view except what was in the well, like Mammy told us to do and leaned way over and looked. Now up to this time, my diary, whenever I have mentioned Sir Reginald, I was kinder half-joking, and never really thought he would come to pass, as so many things in this life don't, but now I believe it's so. While I couldn't make out his face very well, and don't know whether his eyes are blue or brown, and his nose Roman or not, Still, there was something glittering and shining in that well, which I firmly believe was meant to be Sir Reginald de Beverley and his coat of mail. They were punching me and saying, Anne, do you see anything? Till I couldn't tell whether he smiled at me or not. But I remembered my manners even on such a critical occasion. So I got up and let them look. They commenced pulling down their bonnets like I did and leaned over the well. I was on the other side, facing the lilac bushes, and in less time than it takes me to write it, me being in a hurry and my pencil short, there was something happening that made me feel like I was in a fairy tale. I saw those lilac bushes move, and the next thing I knew, there was Mr. St. John. Not in a white vest, it's true, but looking beautiful enough even in the daylight. He motioned me not either to speak or move though I couldn't have done either one, being almost paralyzed between seeing him and Sir Reginald at the same time. He tipped up right easy and leaned over the well opposite Miss Merle. When Jean saw his image in the well, she gave one overjoyed scream and leaned farther over to see more. Oh, it's Mr. St. John, she called out to her Aunt Merle, her voice sounding very deep and hollow, but joyful. It's Mr. St. John. He's going to be my future husband. He and Miss Merle were about to kill themselves laughing, for Miss Merle had seen him from the first. But when Jean looked up and saw him, he looked at her so sweet that you felt like you could forgive him anything he was to do, even the ither and nither. I'd like to accommodate you, Jean, he said laughing and catching her hand with an affectionate look, although he's usually very timid and dignified. But the fact is, may I tell, Merle? And the way he said, Merle, sounded like a whole box of marshmallows. Miss Merle smiled at him, and then he told Jean, if she would every bit as soon have it that way, he would be her uncle, 
instead of her future husband i was so afraid that she would faint or die right there in the pasture that i told him i heard mother call me and ran as hard as i could tear she came over this afternoon to tell me all about it and was feeling strong enough to eat a small basket of wild goose plums oh it was a terrible shock at first she said stopping long enough to spit out a seed but the minute he said uncle my love changed why anne an uncle is an old person almost like a grandpa anyway they've promised that i should be in the wedding dressed in a pair of beautiful white silk stockings End of chapter nine read by c j plogue